This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. In late July, Israel's parliament, the Knesset, passed the first part of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's sweeping reform plan that aims to completely overhaul the nation's judiciary. The reform limits the Israeli Supreme Court's power and effectively delivers a mighty tool for far-right lawmakers to reshape Israeli society. The measure passed despite massive and historic protests. In January, hundreds of thousands of Israelis flooded into the streets to oppose Netanyahu's plan. Eight months later, the weekly protests are still going on. A lot of Israelis asking questions they haven't asked in the past about what democracy really means, what are the policies that contradict democracy. Dalia Shendlin is a public opinion researcher and a columnist for the Israeli newspaper Haaretz. She first joined us back in March of this year to provide analysis on what she sees as the deep historic roots of Israel's current political crisis. We connected with her again this week to better understand how the protest movement has evolved. We don't know exactly how representative they are because nobody's going around with proper sampling methods at the demonstrations trying to figure it out. But we do know from survey research that over 20 percent of Israelis say they've participated in the demonstrations, which is remarkable for public demonstrations. Usually in most countries, we would see somewhere in the you know very low single percent, maybe three or four percent in total say they generally go demonstrate. That means 20 percent or one in five Israelis have taken to the streets to protest their sitting government, which they fear will turn Israel into a hard-right fundamentalist state. But how widespread is that fear? The protests are not a fully representative sample of Israeli society. For one thing, they're heavily Jewish. There are very few Arab citizens, Palestinian citizens who participate. They're certainly skewed towards centrist Israelis by their own self-definition and left-wing Israelis. And to some extent, There are moderate right-wing Israelis, but there is certainly some representation of religious people, of people of Mizrahi background. Uh, There are different class levels, despite the government's best efforts to vilify this as some sort of upper crust, 1% elitist protest. It's absolutely not the case. They are largely middle class. Certainly, we have representation of a whole spectrum of professional communities, community organizations, schools, representatives of medical organizations, unions. I mean, there are such a swath of society that even if it's not representative, there is a big and unusual cross-section of the population. Shandlin says this raises an important question. When protesters say they're fighting to protect Israeli democracy, does that include the rights for non-Jewish citizens, Israelis who are Arabs, other Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza? It's very hard to say because we would need in-depth survey research to try to figure that out. But I think we're all going based on what we see and feel and what I've seen in surveys showing that I don't see a dramatic shift in the general orientation of the Israeli public when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. What we do have is many Israelis, including in the mainstream center and even to some extent on the moderate right, are asking, is it a coincidence that this government is trying to undermine judicial independence and constraints on the power of the government, and at the very same time, expand settlements you know, in an extreme way and expand Israel's annexation and put pressure on Palestinians and support settler violence against Palestinians, which members of this government openly do. And I think a lot of Israelis are starting to realize that's not a coincidence. 
Now, members or leaders, I should say, of the Israeli protest movement say they will continue with the weekly demonstrations, those hundreds of thousands of people, for as long as it takes. But with the successful passage of the first part of the judicial reform plan, Prime Minister Netanyahu and the Israeli right see no reason to relent. Shandlin says that makes Israel's future fragile and uncertain. Nobody's willing to place bets on what will happen. But I would say one of the big fears hanging over everybody's mind is whether there will be violence. Every small scuffle between protesters and police raises the fear that violence will spread. There have been attacks by pro-government supporters on the demonstrators. Nobody's been killed, thank God. But all of these things put everybody very on edge. And I think that is one of the biggest concerns. Dalia Shendlin is a public opinion researcher and a columnist for the Israeli newspaper Haaretz. Incidentally, she's also the author of the forthcoming book, The Crooked Timber of Democracy in Israel, Promise Unfulfilled. She's in Tel Aviv. Well, September will be a critical month for the nation of Israel for several reasons, including the fact that there are several lawsuits challenging Netanyahu's judicial overhaul plan, meaning the very laws designed to radically restrain the judiciary's power and independence will land before the Israeli Supreme Court itself. Nadav Tamir is a former diplomat who served under three foreign ministers as political officer in Israel's embassy in Washington, D.C., and as consul general for New England. And today, he's executive director of J Street Israel, a liberal pro-peace advocacy organization. And he, too, joins us from Tel Aviv. Nadav Tamir, welcome to you. Thank you, Megda. I'd like to first pick up with you where Dahlia uh, left off, and that is how serious are the concerns about potential violence uh, as this ongoing, I don't even know if I can call it a stalemate, but the, the protests continue and it seems as if Netanyahu and his supporters are still pushing through other aspects of their judicial reform plan. I don't think we will see violence in the measures that we see in many other countries when you have demonstrations and riots. Uh, so far, we didn't see much. Of course, it's a concern because everybody are concerned by violence. I think that most likely the conflict will be uh, between the Supreme Court and the Attorney General and the government, which will lead to a constitutional crisis because when the Supreme Court will uh, decide one way and the government will decide not to abide or to go another way, then the police, the military, the Shabak, the Mossad, everybody will have to decide what side are they on. I have no doubt that the most important sectors in Israeli society will uh, abide by the law and not follow the politicians. And I believe that will bring uh, a crisis to this government, especially to the Likud party, the largest party in the Netanyahu party within this coalition. Mm. Now, when you say the most important segments of Israeli society amongst um, the ones that you just mentioned, including the military uh, and Mossad, uh, again, I'm asking you to peer into a crystal ball here, Nadav, but do you think that those groups or institutions, I should say, will align themselves, uh, as you said, with the law and not far-right politicians? Yes, I have no doubt. And uh, they already gave some indications. Uh, the leaders of the brass and the, and the working level, uh, of course, not the politicians. And also the, the, 
startup nation, the economy, the, you know, mm. very uh, strong sectors, the academia in Israeli society, I have no doubt that will be within the side of the law. Um, and I think that will um, stop the attempt of this government uh, to move ahead. Um, on top of that, of course, you see that the economic situation of the country is going down, the international status of the country, and uh, many people speak about security uh, threats when uh, many in the very important units, pilots and others are saying that they are not going to serve in a dictatorship. Mm -hmm. um, so either that will break Likud from within, or if they decide not to move, that will make... Um, the relations between Netanyahu and his coalition partners very, very tense because this is not what they promised to their constituencies. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'd like to just take a moment to um, dig a little deeper into what's going to happen in September, specifically, as, as we've been discussing. First of all, there are at least three challenges to the judicial reform uh, plans that Netanyahu managed to pass in the Knesset. I should note that it passed because the opposition... Uh, uh, parties uh, left the Knesset, physically left the room. So the the uni uh, I should say the the overwhelming vote for the plan was because it was the remainder of the Knesset that supports or is in coalition with Netanyahu. Okay, so on September seventh, there's um, a, a particular challenge coming uh, to the Israeli Supreme Court on September twelfth which I believe people are saying is the most important. There is that direct law to the challenge of the independence uh, of the Supreme Court that that same court will have to rule on. And then September 28th, another challenge to um, a new policy that says prime ministers can only be removed from office for physical or mental health reasons. So that's what could happen over the next, uh, that's going to happen over the next month. Give me your analysis, Nadav, for just a moment of how, of the fact that it's the, the Supreme Court itself that's going to be asked to rule on, as laws do function in Israel, but on a set of laws that threatens its you know, own survival. Yeah, those are unprecedented times in Israel. Um, because we don't have a constitution, um, we passed uh, during the years some basic laws that were supposed to eventually create a constitution. And now the, um, the coalition is trying to use those basic laws in order to claim that if you pass this basic law, the Supreme Court is not entitled to change them. Uh, but the problem is that you could actually create a basic law just with two against one in the Knesset uh, because we don't really have a, a clear mechanism of how to create a basic law. So in those three cases that you mentioned, one of them is uh, the biggest one is on the reasonable uh, standards that the Supreme Court could say that uh, a law is not constitutional if it, uh, if it is not reasonable. Um, the Supreme Court uh, president uh, is... Um, is invited all 15 members of the Supreme Court, which never happened in Israeli history because it's such a dramatic uh, uh, event when they're going to decide on something that is so basic for our uh, uh, structure as a democracy. And the two other cases, the one of uh, incapitation of the prime minister, which uh, uh, the appeals are claiming that he's in a conflict of interest and he could not... Uh, uh, legislate laws that are personal 
about him. So the Supreme Court might decide to just delay it uh, mm. to, to the next Knesset. And uh, the third one is Actually, on the committee uh, that select judges. Nadav, I'm so sorry to, to cut you off there. It's just that we have a few seconds before we have to take a break. So we'll pick up this conversation when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash on point. That's Indeed.com slash on point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we're trying to understand what might happen in Israel next as uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's massive judicial reform plan faces three distinct legal challenges that will unfold before the Israeli Supreme Court next month, which means that very court will have to determine the fate of laws that have been designed to restrain the court's independence. Now, Ron Dermer is former ambassador to the United States and now Minister of Strategic Affairs for Israel. He told PBS's NewsHour's Nick Schifrin that the Israeli government's changes to the Supreme Court is, in fact, the will of the majority of Israelis who voted for Netanyahu's current government. And therefore, he believes it's the protesters who are behaving in an anti-democratic manner. In Israel, you cannot replace the will of the public through their elected representatives with 15 unelected judges to decide that this is reasonable or unreasonable. Since you've been pushing this through, there have obviously been massive, uh, unprecedented protests across the country. The shekels lost value, private capital inflows are down, Israel startups are registering abroad, Moody's, S&P have warned about investing in Israel, and of course, the military in Israel have repeatedly warned there is a crisis of readiness because of the fissures that your reforms have created in society and because reservists are now threatening not to show up. So is that not a failure of leadership by Prime Minister Netanyahu. No, I don't think so. Again, that was Minister of Strategic Affairs for Israel, Ron Dermer, on the PBS NewsHour. Nadav Tamir, it's hard for me to fully get a grasp on how widespread or not public support is for Israel's, uh, for Netanyahu's judicial reform plan. Obviously, the protesters are, are strongly opposed to it. Uh, hundreds of thousands of them. As Dahlia said a little earlier, one in five Israelis have said they have protested uh, in the past year. But does that necessarily mean that the opposition to those laws is uh, extremely widespread in Israel or not? Well, we also have uh, data from some uh, surveys 
public opinion polls that shows that the majority of Israelis are uh, unhappy with this, um, what they call judicial reform and what the opposition and the demonstrations call a regime coup. Um, we also saw some um, prediction for elections if they were to happen now and Likud would shrink dramatically uh, and this coalition will not stay in power if there were elections tomorrow. Um, so it seems that even within his own base, uh, within his own party, people did not expect that. They never heard that this is what is planned after the elections and they don't understand why it has to um, be um, conducted in such a unilateral way without trying to create a consensus. Okay. Let me take a step back here because perhaps another way to read um, if and how much support for the judicial reform plan exists is to remind ourselves of what happened back in 2022, uh, I believe, with the last Israeli elections. Because uh, the Times of Israel at that uh, at that time described the defeat of anti-Netanyahu parties as a self-exacerbated defeat um, because there was just such a small margin between them and the pro-Netanyahu parties. But given the way the parliamentary system works, it meant that uh, that uh, Likud et al. actually had captured an eight-seat majority in the Knesset. But when it comes to actual votes, it was roughly 50-50, right, right Nadav? Yes. Um, just like your electoral college, um, some elections in Israel are not always exact on the popular vote. And what happens in Israel is that you have to have a threshold of 3.25% in order to get into the Knesset. And if you don't get it as a party, then all those votes are going to waste. Uh, so two parties from the anti-Netanyahu bloc actually did not cross the threshold. But I would add to that that uh, it, the change now is not only that probably the, the, the left uh, or the center left will be more organized as a lesson, but this energy uh, in the streets uh, among liberals or for years were completely indifferent and, you know, waiting for their exit of their startup, enjoying the culinary scene in Tel Aviv, are now are so uh, into the legal issues and can quote Montesquieu. Uh, that's a huge change because for so many years the energy was on the other side. Mm. So you're saying there's been an awakening of the center and left in Israel? Absolutely. And that is unprecedented in Israel's history. Mm. Well, let's let's again hypothesize what might happen after September, because the Israeli judiciary, the Supreme Court, uh, is bound both by law, uh, tradition and history to um, offer ostensibly uh, a, a, a decisions based in Israeli law. So it's it is possible that if they you know possess fealty to how the judiciary is supposed to work, that the Israeli Supreme Court may not uh, decide against Netanyahu's plan. Okay, I I don't know what's going to happen, but we have to leave open that that possibility. If that does occur, where does that mean the protest movement goes next? Well, I think that in uh, there's the decisions of the Supreme Court will not be kind of black and white. Uh, I think they will try to uh, delay 
They will try to ask the government to come with some explanations. They might uh, wait with a decision until actually the government is doing something that is unreasonable, like um, firing the attorney general. So I'm not sure that the crescendo will happen in September. Um, but I think that if the Supreme Court will uh, decide on the side of the government, that will um, take a lot of the steam out of the protests. Mm. Now, uh, we're going to hear from an Arab-Israeli voice in just a moment, but Nadav, I wanted to get your sense as to how uh, the protest movement itself in Israel has uh, evolved or changed, because uh, looking at it from afar, it's maybe too easy for us here in the United States to come to the conclusion that the movement is made up almost exclusively of, let's say, middle or upper class uh, liberal Israelis from Tel Aviv, uh, where you are right now. But has the makeup of what the protest movement uh, stands for, believes in, the concerns they have regarding rights, and who even is there, um, expanded to include non-Jewish Israelis? So there is a process. In the early days, when there were some Palestinian flags, everybody got uh, paranoid about it and said this is going to be used by the other side and it will tear the the unity of the liberals uh, from within because there are some soft right people. Uh, and uh, the tendency was to reclaim the flag and the national anthem and the um, declaration of independence. Um, so I think that the Arab population did not feel very invited. And also, um, you know, the leaders of the demonstrations wanted to focus just on the Yariv Levine, Minister of Justice, and Rotman, the head of the committee, um, um, judicial moves and not on occupation or the situation of the Arab society. But I do see a change. Mm. I see that, you know, more people who moved out of their comfort zone are starting to understand that democracy is not only for Jews and that there is an, uh, a connection between uh, what's happening in the territories and what's happening in Israel. Uh, it's still not where uh, I would like it to be, but I think that you see a movement in the last demonstration in Kaplan in Tel Aviv, which is the biggest one, even though there are demonstrations all over the country. Uh, the speaker, the main speaker was uh, the mayor of, an, uh, of a city that is uh, of Palestinian citizens of Israel who spoke about uh, the issues of the Palestinian society. And I think that you're starting to see a movement to that, that direction. But I'm really also curious to hear what Sally Abed will say about it. Yeah, so we're going to hear from her in a second. But to sort of summarize what you just said, perhaps there's a, and Dahlia essentially said the same thing, that perhaps there's a growing awareness that if the Israeli government can behave anti-democratically uh, in Gaza and the West Bank, that uh, it's not such a leap for uh, this particular government in the eyes of protesters, to behave anti-democratically within Israel itself and to um, uh, Jewish-Israeli citizens. So, uh, Nadav, you mentioned Sally Abed. We did speak to her. She is an Israeli and an Arab-Israeli. She's also a political activist and a leader at Standing Together. It's the largest Jewish-Arab grassroots movement in Israel right now. So does she think her Jewish fellow citizens are beginning to see any connection between the rights they fear losing and Israel's treatment of Palestinians. I was very skeptical at the beginning. 
We were the very first ones to open this wave of protests and we put the occupation on the table, right? And back then, the question was, should the occupation be part of the question or should it not be during those protests? And now it's not even a question, right? Of course, it's part of the conversation. Of course, the settlements are part of the conversation when we talk about the judicial overhaul. And of course, the occupation is one of the major roots and causes of the deterioration of the democratic institutions. It's a very interesting process that the Israeli public is going through. Now, this doesn't mean that Sally Abed sees a critical mass of Jewish Israelis suddenly defending the rights of Palestinians. However, she believes that that does not necessarily preclude change. We're not anywhere near there. As a community organizer, we look at things differently. We look at the spectrum of support, right? And we are looking at the people who were maybe a little bit in the center and are now like two clicks to the left and people who were one click to the right and are now on the center. These are major deep processes that are necessary for us to go forward. Meanwhile, Palestinians are experiencing a terrible crime wave in their communities, a rise of further rise of organized crime, murders. Sally Abed says that comes about because of the system that's been in place long before the Netanyahu government came into power. I really think it's an extension of the system of oppression. You know, in the West Bank, it's a military occupation. In in Gaza, it's a siege. And in Israel, the Palestinians just are suffering from constant discrimination, poverty, very high levels of poverty, of political persecution, and complete negligence of crime for years. And it's flourished has completely flourished. Organized crime has taken over every single aspect of our lives today. We have zero safe spaces, uh, political, personal, social. We have zero safe spaces as Palestinians in Israel. It's yet another extension of the oppressive Israeli system Yeah, on Palestinians. That was Sally Abed. She's a political activist and leader at Standing Together, the largest Jewish-Arab grassroots movement in Israel. So Nadav Tamir, Sally there in that last bit took this broader perspective of um, the reality for Palestinians and how that may be informing um, the evolving thinking amongst protesters. I'm wondering if you could help us understand a little bit more the plans that the Netanyahu government um, has for, for example, the West Bank um, and what's been going on with the the Israeli military uh, in in those places, specifically through um, the point of what does the judicial overhaul um, further allow the Israeli government to do in Palestinian territories? So, yeah, it's important to remember that the judicial um, um, reform, as they call it, uh, was created in order to... um, uh, make the, this government or this coalition uh, to enable them to pass many um, clauses within the coalition agreements um, that has to do with so many things in Israeli life and also in the territories. Uh, it is actually a coalition of uh, um, the ultra-Orthodox who have their own sectorial issues and don't want um 
the, you know, the rule of law because they want their own benefits and also the messianic settlers who want who know that the Supreme Court uh, could uh, prevent them from doing what they want in the territories. And while we are witnessing and most of the attention is on the judicial reform, there is another um, revolution happening in the territories. Uh, Bezalel Smotrich, who is the minister of finance, but he's also a minister within the Minister of Defense, is actually changing the rules of the game um, in the in the West Bank. Uh, and uh, actually, uh, instead of the military being kind of the um, holding the situation because the occupation is supposed to be temporary, he's actually saying, no, the occupation is not temporary and I'm moving the whole thing into civilian hands, which is completely against international law um, and has a lot of consequences that I'm afraid most demonstrators don't even realize. Uh, so the situation on the ground, which is, you know, they did not invent the occupation. It's happening for 56 years. But uh, what they're doing right now is tearing the masks that the occupation is temporary and it, that we are actually looking for a partner for a two-state solution because this government has no intention. Uh, what they really want to do is annex uh, big chunks of the West Bank. Mm. Well, so then... But then tell me more about how um, that, like you said, that tearing off of the mask might be uh, might be being received by the Israeli Jewish public uh, at large. Because, as you pointed out, this has been going on for decades. Why now? So first of all, as I said, people moved out of their comfort zone and okay. they have become more um, attentive to what's going on. And listening to the news and uh, many people that in the past I used to tell my Tel Avivian friends that they're enjoying the jacuzzi on the Titanic when they ignore what's happening in the West Bank. But now uh, I think they're awakened. And uh, another thing is that uh, settler violence uh, and uh, the de the defense that uh, some of the, you know, Jewish supremacy ministers in this government are, are backing is so uh, outrageous that even people who in the past did not really care much about what's going on there are starting to pay, to pay attention. And uh, to that, I will add that because of the international uh, law consequences, we might reach a situation where the protections that Israel had, because we had an independent um, judiciary and the uh, you know, is is going to be removed. So mm. soldiers, politicians who are actually uh, acting in, in the West Bank are going to be um, vulnerable uh, to the international uh, courts, for example. I see. Okay. Well, Nadav Tamir, stand by for just a moment. We've got much more to try and understand. When we come back, this is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. 
As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And before we dive back into today's hour, I have an important question to ask all of you. Do you feel better off financially this year than you did last year? Think about it for a second, because I'm going to want your answer in the form of uh, voicemails here. And the reason why we're asking is because there was a recent large survey done that found that only 13% of those surveyed in the United States say they are better off this year than they were last year. So a deep financial pessimism uh, exists in America across parties and across incomes. Because for even folks making above $100,000 or more a year, almost 80% of them said they were not better off financially than they were a year ago. So we want to understand why those feelings exist. So first of all, pick up your phone and get the On Point Vox Pop app. If you have, if you don't have it, go to wherever you get your apps and look for On Point Vox Pop. And there you can tell us, do you feel better off financially this year than you did last year? Why or why not? And then secondly, what would it take to make you feel more confident about your financial present and future? So again, do that on the On Point Vox Pop app, or you can leave us a voicemail at 617-353-0660. We're working uh, on that for next week. Today, we are talking about what may lay ahead for Israel and Israeli democracies as protests against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's judicial reforms continue, continue to flood into uh, Israeli streets eight months after they began. Now, we've already talked a little bit about the role that major institutions in Israel are playing right now, and that includes the military and intelligence agencies in Israel. So Dalia Shendlin, the public opinion researcher we heard at the top of the show, says it is striking how many uh, top-level folks in those same institutions have backed the protest movement. Much of the resistance to the government's policies has come from within the security services, the army, the air force. I mean, from the very early stages, there were figures within the Mossad, employees of the Mossad who wanted to participate and the head of the Mossad had to give them approval to allow them to participate in demonstrations. The police, you know, are much maligned by all sides, frankly. But to be honest, they have been doing a pretty good job of protecting hundreds of thousands of protesters, making sure everything goes off smoothly, closing down roads in major cities, especially in Tel Aviv. And it's true that they have sometimes used a heavy hand. But I think for the most part, the police have fairly balanced sense of how to manage security and society. And I don't think they would accept orders to go overboard with that. Again, that's Dahlia Shenlin, public opinion researcher in Tel Aviv. As she said, some members of the intelligence community and the military uh, not only wanted to participate in the protests, they have sometimes refused to do their duties uh, as ordered by uh, the Netanyahu government. 
So one person who is vocal about his support for the anti-Netanyahu protests is Josh Drill. He's Jewish-American, now an Israeli citizen, and he joined the Israeli army, became a platoon commander of the storied Golani Brigade, and he told us that experience changed him. I became an officer and was stationed with my platoon in the heart of Hebron, and I was not really prepared for what we would be doing, entering Palestinian homes on a weekly basis in order to guarantee the security of these 800 Messianic settlers living in the heart of Hebron. And there was one particular raid that I'll just never forget. We entered the house at around two o'clock in the morning, and we had to separate men into one room and women and children into another room so we could start searching the house. And there was this boy around seven or eight years old, and he was just peeing his pants. I just remember looking at the boy and having this kind of almost out-of-body experience, realizing like, oh my God, I could be that kid and that kid could be in my shoes. Josh also says that Israelis tend to play down the settler movement, but he has protected and spoken with settlers. And he says these experiences have made him believe that the settler movement is a much bigger problem for Israel than other Israelis might believe. I discovered for the first time as an officer in Hebron about the dangers of Messianic settlers who seek to turn Israel into an apartheid state. While I was there as an officer, I could hear what they were talking about. There's different thought leaders in Hebron that would talk to me and talk to the soldiers, very racist, very ultra-nationalist ideologies. And they were kind of always, I think, hushed to the side, put to the side and said, oh, well, that's only a little minority that's not, you know, that doesn't represent Israeli society. And now we see, we now need to deal with the implications of this. One more thing. Josh says, of course, because of the historic persecution of Jews, that many Jews uh, and Israelis are reflexively protective of the settlers. However, he sees that as changing. I can tell you that for Jews and, and lovers of Israel, all over the world, there has always been a natural inclination to want to defend the state of Israel, to defend what Israel represents and what the Israeli government is doing. There is also a shift in that now because of the fact that people like Ben Gvir and Smotrich and these messianic extreme ultranational settlers are now in power. We have no longer any motivation to explain or to try to justify the actions of what this government is doing. Again, that's Josh Drill, former member of the Israeli military. So he's describing there what he sees as fundamentally um, wrong and even anti-democratic actions that he had to take as a member of the Israeli military. However, it is obvious that Prime Minister Netanyahu's government sees the protesters themselves as behaving in an anti-democratic way way. So once again, here's Ron Dermer, Israeli government minister, responding to that issue. He was on PBS's NewsHour speaking to Nick Schifrin. Unfortunately, some of these protesters have crossed lines that should never be crossed. We're a citizen's army in Israel. The army should have never been brought into it. And wait I think, a minute, wait, are you criticizing individual members for protesting at all? Is that what no, of course not. The protest is a fundamental right in every democracy. What I don't think you should do, military reservists should not come to an elected government and say, if you don't adopt this or that policy, we're not going to serve But democracy. you have Israeli military leaders warning the prime minister 
that this is a readiness issue. That's more than just the question of individual reserves. Because the military reservists have decided that they're going to dictate the policy. And, and the leader and the military leaders have said there's there's a significant But the, the people who this. make decisions in a democracy are not military reservists or military officials. It's the elected branch of government and it's that's Israel's democratic leaders that have to make that decision. Again, that was Ron Dermer, government minister on PBS's NewsHour. Nadav Tamir, I, I still want to get some clarity here about the what, the role that the military here is playing in Israel. Because isn't it entirely possible that uh, the Israeli military, that the parts of it that have spoken out against the reforms, aren't necessarily doing that because they are suddenly having a crisis of conscience regarding what the military is doing uh, in the West Bank and Gaza, but rather it's for the military's own integrity. And that should the uh, sort of the judicial crisis ebb away here, that uh, that would calm the concerns of the Israeli military, but not necessarily change anything in what's happening in the West Bank and Gaza. So there are different layers to what's going on. Um, uh, some of it is because people said, listen, we signed up to serve for our country because we believe in the principles, in the declaration of principle of, of uh, independence, which is that Israel is a, a, a democratic, a liberal democracy, uh, the democratic homeland of the Jewish people. And what this government is doing is changing the the government the the, the state in a, in a way that we it's not the contract that we signed on another aspect is that some people say listen we might actually pay the price if we do things that are unlawful and the international law says Israel doesn't have an independence a, a judicial system to actually take care of those issues on its own then you know the international courts will deal with it and uh, the other thing is more awakening uh, that I spoke about before, and Josh Drill also spoke about it, that people are starting to ask questions that they didn't ask in the past. And that goes also to the ongoing occupation and uh, where does it lead Israel and that the occupation actually um, cannot survive in a democracy. Even if we achieve democracy for the Jews, we will still have the occupation, which means that so many Palestinians are under military occupation, and that is not democratic. So let's hear what Sali Abed, the Israeli Arab activist, has to say about that. It's quite obvious for Israelis that the occupation has a very, very heavy moral toll. I don't think that's something that you can hide. I do think that it was necessary, though, to build a narrative that justifies the oppressive system by saying it's either them or us. If they don't suffer, like we will die. So it's a very interesting moral dissonance that Israel has so successfully built. It, it's an amazing achievement almost. You know, the amount of dissonance they were able to maintain for 75 years, for 100 years. But I do think that something is happening. Sally Abed, the Israeli Arab activist there. So something is happening, she says. But the question is, what really is happening. And that brings us back to something that we uh, began to tangle with at the beginning of the show. 
what could happen next? Where does the standoff between the government and the protest movement in Israel go from here? So once again, here's uh, Dalia Shenlin. I'd like to think we're not headed towards civil war. But as to whether Israel now moves ahead to strengthen its democratic institutions, deepen the understanding and education for democratic values, putting together new kinds of political and social coalitions between, for example, Jewish and Arab citizens or other historically marginalized populations, including within Jewish society, or whether the government eventually has its way, lets the protests run its course, annexes the West Bank, formalizes, institutionalizes the existing inequality between Israeli citizens and everybody else. That right now, I think nobody can predict. And I'd like to say it would be the former, but it very easily could end up being the latter. So Nadav Tamir, I want to just check ourselves here for a moment, because I think we could say that we've heard voices, including yours, of very cautious optimism. But again, underscoring the cautious part. But is there not also reason to actually be quite pessimistic about the degree of change that might happen in Israeli society over the coming months, years, or even decades? Because Dahlia there was talking about, you know, this may be an opportunity to strengthen Israeli democratic institutions. But as we've seen right here in the United States, once those institutions are weakened, it is very, very hard to rebuild them unless there's overwhelming support amongst the people for for a stronger stronger democracy. And you know, my view for here in the United States is that perhaps there isn't overwhelming support in this very country to strengthen, you know, the pillars of democracy here. So does that not justify some degree of pessimism regarding Israel's future? Well, we all know that nobody could predict the future. And uh, we all know that in times of crisis, and Israel is indeed in times of crisis, there is a lot of anxiety. Uh, and many people are very concerned. Uh, the reason why I'm optimistic is that I believe that Israel was on a very uh, problematic course even be- before this awful government that we have now. Um, but because uh, the liberal majority was asleep, um, it just went this way and there was no way to you know, to change course. And now, because this government went so um, assertively, uh, they awakened the the liberal majority. And that is an opportunity to turn this crisis into a change because Israel really need a constitutional framework. Israel need border between um, the majority and the rights of the minority. Israel needs a border between state and religion, and Israel needs badly a border uh, between us and a Palestinian state. Mm. And I do believe that this crisis might bring about uh, some change. I don't know if the change will be exactly the way I want it, but I believe that uh, it's better than just going on in the status mm. quo that we had before. To wrap up the conversation, uh, Nadav, in a sense, um, as one does on a public radio show like this, we have been talking somewhat abstractly about these concerns regarding rights that uh, protesting uh, Israelis have. But have there been concrete changes so far, uh, you know, on the ground in the lives of Israelis regarding, uh, say, far right wing strictures? in in their lives or not? Is it still just an abstract concern? 
You do see um, more and more cases, for example, where women are uh, told that they have to go to the back of the bus and the uh, LGBTQ people. And of course, uh, um, the Palestinian citizens of Israel and the Palestinians in the West Bank, Gaza, East Jerusalem are suffering for a long time. Um, but they never uh, saw, um, um, you know, the, the uh, actually fascists um, that is kind of an Israeli version of a Koklas clan in the government. So um, we're not where it could go yet, but I do believe that, for example, in the territories with the feeling of many of the settlers that they have the backing of the ministers and there's much more violence. Uh, I do believe that the change is already felt, but I think it is still reversible. Mm. And it is, I think, also a time for American Jews and also for the American administration and Congress to understand <clears throat> that the fight for democracy is not only in the U.S. and it's not only in Hungary. It's everywhere in the world yeah. and liberals should hold hands together to fight for our democracies together. I have five seconds, but I want to get clarification. The women being forced to ride in the back of the bus, is that happening only in ultra-Orthodox neighborhoods or more broadly in places like Tel Aviv and Jerusalem? Uh, of course, more in a more traditional um, places, less in Tel Aviv, but it it did even happen in Give a Time, which is a very liberal city. And there are several other incidents mm. like that. Well, Nadav Tamir, executive director of J Street Israel, speaking to us from Tel Aviv today. Thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. <laughs> 